Alright folks, welcome back to another episode of Triple G, Ginger's Gridiron and Golf Podcast here. And we are recording tonight, Tuesday night, in my backyard, beautiful night, Leaf Game On, Game 4 action. As we go here, I believe it's tied 0-0 after the first period, but uh, we're no longer talking hockey or baseball, we're diving deep into golf and football, NFL football, and we got another jam-packed episode. We got Jake Liskow from uh, Locked On Bengals podcast joining us a little bit later on to talk Cincinnati Bengals, AFC North. We're going to dive into the AFC East as well and their draft. So uh, before we get into all that, let's start off with the big news of the week, and that's Philly Mickelson with the PGA Championship victory at Kiowa Island. Shout out to our Callaway rep. Had a smooth hundy on Philly at 100 to 1. I'll let you do the math. That's a quick 10. So uh, well done there. But uh, just wanted to touch on a couple things um, on the PGA side of things. Um, The first being the golf course. Absolutely amazing shout out to the golf course. Uh, Kiowa showed up and showed out, no doubt. Um, great, great venue, great layout, great fans, amazing. Key, interesting to see how uh, the the two nine layouts, which we talked about last from last week's guest Bob Herrig um, from ESPN, that was on. Um, in the terms of how that would play out in, in terms of wind direction and club selection and all those things that go into the the course setup and and how they had it set up and really cool to get that feel for a PGA championship because you don't typically have that. Um, It's usually traditional golf courses. You know, we see the Oak Hills, we see the Harding parks and those, those parkland traditional uh, tree line golf courses. Yeah. We've, you know, we've seen the, the whistling straights in Kohler, Wisconsin, you know, we've seen the oddballs here and there, but you know, traditionally that PGA, um, is those those traditional type of golf courses. So um, amazing to see how the wind conditions slipped around on Sunday and totally changed the golf course. You know, all week they were really trying to, um, you know, hang on on, the, you know, the first four holes. And then they would make their hay like Bob, Bob and I talked about um, on holes 6 through 11, 12 type of thing. Uh, you know, twelve or twelve and thirteen played tough all week, and then fourteen through eighteen was was a you know hanging on again. And we saw on Sunday it was uh, it was the opposite. You know, twelve and thirteen played the toughest two holes on the golf course, and um, you know, fourteen through eighteen was a little bit easier. So, it would have been real interesting to see what would have happened come down that stretch uh, thirteen, you know, twelve through eighteen, if that wind direction would have been the same way. Um, even with a four or five shot lead like Phil had, um, you know, nothing, nothing is, um, 
set in stone on those holes. You know, we saw Cameron Tringali uh, shoot 48 on that back nine in a heartbeat. We saw Poulter uh, on, on Thursday um, was four over in the last uh, three holes, 16 through 18. So it would have been really interesting to see. But but uh, the cream rose to the top. Phil Mickelson was the best golfer all weekend long. Did anybody give him a real challenge on Sunday? No, not really. No, Nobody really took the lead and, and made him go get it. You know, Bryce had a one-shot lead, but they were just so back and forth on that front nine with five two-shot swings that it never really felt like it was, you know, that Phil was being tested or, or put up against it um, or somebody was, you know, making four or five birdies like Abraham answer earlier um, that morning who shot seven under. That just wasn't out there by the time Sunday afternoon rolled around. Uh, you continued to see um, guys struggle across the board and um you know phil was was the best golfer was the steadiest golfer and to me the most focused golfer the most um ready golfer in terms of course management and really stuck to his game plan really stuck to his um you know his swing plan and his swing thoughts and and well done to phil mickelson it was a matter of time you know dutch and i have talked about it on air off air in terms of you know seeing these these Steve Strickers and Jerry Kellys and and um, Fred Couples and VJ Singh and and for years we've seen these senior guys um, at 50 51 52 years old um, push the limits of of the young guns on the PGA Tour and and it was a matter of time we've seen you know Fred hold the lead for 36 holes at the Masters uh, we've seen Steve Stricker contend in some big events so it was just a matter of time that, that, that somebody was able to, to bring home a championship and, and a major championship and none better than Phil Mickelson to uh, lament his Hall of Fame career. And there's absolutely no doubt that it's a Hall of Fame career. So, But I wanted to flip over. That, you know, that was the, the good news in terms of the PGA Championship and, and, and Kiowa Island. And now I want to flip over to the bad news. And, and to me, it's, an, it's a ginger's garbage. And, and the, PGA, the PGA of America has addressed it. But what an absolute shit show on the 18th hole on Sunday. Yeah, you can say it's fun. Yeah, you can say it's a spectacle. But these guys are still trying to finish a golf tournament. You know, what would have been that scenario if Phil Mickelson has the same lie as Louis Oosthuizen on the 18th hole? And Brooke Kepka with a perfect angle two shots behind with 121 yards with a flip wedge in his hand and he can barely even get to his golf ball to start with uh, let alone the noise let alone security running in front of him trying to hold things up and who else who knows what else was going on um, out there on that 18th fairway and then the whole debacle trying to get to the green after that so just absolute garbage from I don't know whether it'd be the PGA of America or the security company who was in charge um, to withhold those patrons or those fans, but um, just absolute bullshit to see that at an event and for that to finish. I know some people aren't going to like this take, but I felt bad for Brooks, you know, uh, in terms of trying to finish a golf tournament. For those that have played competitive golf, just put yourself in that situation with that happening and I know it's Phil Mickelson and it's a historic event I get it I I truly do folks but absolute garbage in my mind that the PGA of America 
that whoever was in charge of the security um, this week at Kiowa Island just utterly and brutally failed. Just an epic shit show. And um, unfortunate to see. You know, I know Phil probably didn't want to uh, have that happen. And I know he felt uh, a little bit uh, worried as well. You know, you heard the PGA of America talk about the player's safety um, was put at risk. And, and, you know, for Phil to mention it in, in the... Um, you know, prize presentation or, or the Wanamaker Trophy presentation after the round, that tells you how he felt out there on that 18th fairway walking up um, with all those fans behind him. And and he didn't have it as bad as Brooks did. So kudos on Brooks for not mentioning it, and at least that I didn't hear. But, um, you know, tough spot for, for everybody. But speaking of Brooks, I hope you guys saw the film that leaked of uh, Brooks and Bryson after the round. Um, I believe it was Saturday or Sunday. Amazing footage as to the despair and the hatred between those two. I really hope that we get to see Brooks Kepka and Bryson DeChambeau play in the final round of a major championship because, folks, buckle up. That would be fun because... We every week that goes by, we're finding out more and more that those two boys cannot stand each other. So, um, yeah, let's dial that one up in the next year or so. It'll be absolutely phenomenal to see. In the world of golf, uh, so moving on from the PGA, and we'll we'll uh, put that one to bed and and tuck it away for the night for the year. A um, couple big events. In, in the world of golf, uh, separate from the PGA Tour, and before we get into uh, to our picks and last week's picks and, and this week's picks um, for the Charles Schwab Challenge, uh, big week in the LPGA. They got a match play event, uh, 64 golfers going at Shadow Creek in Nevada. Brooke Henderson's there. It's Wednesday through Sunday. Um, match play bracket, so that's a big event. Make sure you're following along there. And another major in the uh, the Champions Tour. It's the Senior PGA Championship at Southern Hills Golf Club in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You'll know that venue. Uh, we've seen Retief Goosen miss some short putts around that venue. So, um, And we know how competitive that Champions, Champions Tour is. So absolutely um, great event um, in the world of golf. Two great events happening in the world of golf. So we're dialed in. We got majors left, right, and center on the ladies' side next week. Make sure you tune in, folks. We've got Beth Ann Nichols joining us for a U.S. Women's Open preview. And uh, we're going to be dialed in on that side as well. Moving on to uh, this week's event at the um, Charles Schwab Challenge at Colonial Golf Club. Absolutely historic venue uh, longest running non-major uh, Colonial Golf Club is they've been running it I believe since 1946 at Colonial great track Shopmakers Golf Course traditional track par 70 7200 yards at a 75-1 rating 138 slope so an interesting <coughs> part of me venue and track here so let's get into the our picks we got Dutch's picks. He's got some real cool picks this week. 
I like his picks, so I'm just going to read them out for you guys. We got JT at 12 to 1 for Dutch. We've got Justin Rose at 30 to 1 for Dutch. And we got Peter Uline at 125 to 1. I really like that as our dark horse pick of the week for Dutch. So those are Dutch's picks. I'm going to go in a little bit of a different direction. I'm going to go with two kind of rock steady guys this week that I think uh, can be in contention. So I don't really have one of the top five or six big guns. And we'll uh, we'll start from the top this week. And, you know, coming off a quiet T8 finish last week at the PGA Championship, he's T29 playing the Colonial in 2017, second outright in 2019, and T23 in 2020. It's at 22 to 1. I'm taking Tony Finau to uh, to be in contention this week. My Rock City pick, I don't take him very often, but it's um, it's our Canadian boy. T17 last week, he uh, had a tough second round after the first round lead at 25 to 1. Listen, the last two years, he was T30 and T19 on this golf course, so he knows how to play this golf course. He's a ball striker. Hopefully, he can get his putter going. And that's Corey Connors from Listow Golf Club right here in Ontario, Canada. And my flyer pick of the week at 125 to 1. Listen, 2018 he was T23, 2019 he was T30. Made the cut last year. He's made the cut on this golf course four years in a row. That's what you're looking for in your dark horse or your take a flyer pick. 125 to 1. He's showing some good form. T9 at the Byron Nelson, T43 at Wells Fargo, and uh, 44th at the Valspar. So he's making cuts. He's hanging around. All he needs to do is put it together, and that is Joni Vegas as my take-a-flyer pick of this week. Folks, we're still hot. We had five, five golfers inside the top 40. We just couldn't finish last week amongst Matsuyama, Joaquin Neiman, Emiliano Grillo, Gary Woodland, and Bryson DeChambeau. Uh, each one just had a bad round. You know, you, you look at Neiman, Woodland, and Bryson, 76, 77, 77 on Sunday. 77 for Grillo on day one. Just could never really fight back. Kind of held his own from there on out. Really, uh, you know, birdied 16 and 18 to make the cut and, and a solid weekend. And then Matsuyama uh, with the uh, just bad nine holes, 42 on the back nine on Sunday. He was uh, one or two shots off the lead going into the back nine, sorry, on Saturday and posted that 42 coming home. So it just shows you, just like we talked about there, how fast that back nine at uh, Kiowa can come up and bite you. But uh, solid picks again last week. We like our picks again this week. So uh, that's the golf side, folks. That's our golf update for the week. When we get back from break, we're going to dive into the AFC North. We're going to dive into the AFC East. And we got Jake Listow on from the Locked On Bengals podcast to join us talking AFC North Cincinnati Bengals. We'll catch you on the flip side. Um, I believed for a long time that I could play at this level again. I didn't see why I couldn't, but I wasn't executing the way I believed I could. And with the help of a lot of people, my wife especially, but Andrew Getson and, and my brother Tim and, and Steve Loy, I've been able to pro make progress and, and then have this week. So um, it's been very, it's very exciting because um, 
I've had a few breakthroughs on being able to stay more present, be able to stay more, more focused. And physically, I'm, I'm striking it and playing as well as I ever have, but I haven't been able to see that clear picture. So although I believed it until I actually did it, there was, um, there was a lot of doubt, I'm sure. All right, listeners, welcome back from break. Hope you a little, enjoyed a little segment there from Triple, Triple G. Let's dive into now the AFC North talking draft additions. What's happening in the AFC North? We're going to change it up a little bit this week. We're going to, uh, I'm going to dive into it first, and then to end it off, we're going to bring on Jake Liskow from Locked On Bengals Podcast to join us to talk Bengals and kind of round out the AFC North and what we think there. So let's start off in the AFC North with none other than Lamar Jackson, John Harbaugh, and those Baltimore Ravens and what happened here. So so let's take a look. Um, you know, we look at, at the Ravens and, and, and as they lead into the draft with, with eight picks and, you know, some of the the needs that they have at, at linebacker and, and offensive line as Matt Skura leaves and, and safety and, and wide receiver. You know, really trying to find that that number one receiver or that second receiver to go opposite of Hollywood Brown. Um, the Bengal or sorry, the the Ravens make that trade with the Chiefs, and they they end up picking up another pick here at, at thirty one in the draft, and and they've got twenty seven and thirty one, and with that first pick. They go ahead and they try and go and get that receiver to go opposite of Hollywood Brown. And and they get Rashad Bateman out of Minnesota. Is he is he a number two receiver right off the hop? I'm not too sure. Um, they bring in Sammy Watkins for a little bit of insurance. But we know the injury history around Sammy Watkins. So... Um, just not quite sure if Bateman's going to be that immediate playmaker that they're looking for. I think Sammy's going to they're going to try to get a season out of Sammy and allow Bateman to become to be able to come in here and um you know just be himself and whether it be a number 2, number 3 receiver, uh learn with Lamar and really try to um develop into a number 2, possibly a number 1 receiver with that 27th overall pick. And then they take uh, Jason Awehi, um, edge pass rusher out of Penn State, 6'5", 257 pounds. Listen, um, you, you know, your comp is Bud Dupree. Is he as polished right now? Probably not, but he is a he's an absolute uh, freak athlete. You've got Tyus Bauer. He's going to challenge uh, Ty- Tyus Bowser um, for that outside pass rush position. Um, high ceiling on this kid and a real good opportunity and you know what nobody gets more out of their edge rushers than the Baltimore Ravens so um, I like the pick at 31 here to take a high ceiling kid out of Penn State no problem and then I absolutely love this pick with the 94th overall pick big guard 6'6 340 pounds out of Georgia Ben Cleveland um, just a great great uh right now depth piece listen um you've got bozeman inside you've got kevin zeitler inside on the interior offensive line um 
Cleveland is more of a guard right now. I don't think he has much experience uh, playing center at all. So he's going to be that rotational guard on Sunday that can, can probably flip and play left guard, right guard. So absolutely love the pick. Then they take Brent Stevens um, out of uh, Southern Methodist a, a comp pick used. Um little bit of a stretch here. You know, a lot of people had him projected in the fifth round, so not too sure uh, what the Ravens thought was there. Then you move into their uh, the meat and, what I call the meat and potatoes with, with uh, round five. And listen, they take Sean Wade. Um, this is a, a three-year starter who, who transfers over to Ohio State coming over from, from Arizona. Uh, he's a little slower, but this kid is a competitor. He showed out against top-notch talent um, in the Big Ten with Ohio State. He's going to probably play in that nickel spot for Baltimore. So I like this pick in round five at 160. Um, and I also love, and what, why not, um, taking Dalen Wade out of, uh, or Dalen Haynes out of uh, edge rusher out of Notre Dame with uh, the 171st overall pick. Um Smart move here, adding another pass rusher. They add another wide receiver in, in Thailand, Wallace, uh, out of Oklahoma State in round four at 131. And they do what Baltimore does best and what their scheme and what their what they live and breathe, and that's the run game. And they take the only fullback drafted, uh, fifth round, 184th overall pick in Ben Mason out of Michigan. Um, to back up Patrick Ricard and really learn the ropes. And, and as Ricard ages and gets a little bit older, um, Mason's going to be able to fill right in there. And really he's going to be in a spot with this is a, this is a great scheme fit, a great spot for him where he's going to be used and, and have a full opportunity to be able to hear uh, via special teams um, to make this squad learn from one of the best fullbacks that's still in the game. And, and earn a spot um, two, three years down the road here. So overall, I, I like what the Ravens did. They, they go out and, and get that wide receiver that you're looking for. They get some help on the edge with Jason Away. Um, you know, they follow it up later on with Dalen Hayes um, in, in the fifth round. So, you know, they knock off of a, cu- a couple knees there. Some interior O-line help uh, with Cleveland. I'm giving the Baltimore Ravens a thumbs up with their eight picks. I think they, they're going to find themselves with three or four starters and contributors here um, in within the next season or two with this 2021 draft. Now to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Nine picks. We looked at some of the, the help that the Steelers needed. Listen, they needed O-line help desperately. Um, they could use a, a running back linebacker to replace uh, Bud Dupree, who, who's out as well out the door to uh, to Tennessee cornerback and then a tight end so if we look here at at what Pittsburgh does at the 24th overall pick they take Najee Harris running back out of Alabama six foot one 230 pounds his comp is Steven Jackson um, no better fit for Najee no better fit for the Steelers um, big thumbs up on this pick this kid's an immediate starter I'm gonna come in right off the hop here and um and really be a contributor. And you look at at the Steelers and what they what they do here. And this is this is a statement pick to me at, at twenty four, in the fact that 
you know, I'm just going to read you a few, a few names here. Franco Harris, Jerome Bettis, Le'Veon Bell, Willie Parker, uh, Merrill Hodge, John Johnson. Um, they, this is a, a historic franchise and a franchise that has running back after running back after running back and really values the running back position. So nice to see that Pittsburgh might just get back to old school uh, Pittsburgh Steelers football here, running the ball, playing good defense, and and really not having to ask Ben to throw the ball 40, 45, 50 times a game um, here hopefully um, in 2021. We move on to round two with the 55th overall pick. And they take big Pat Fryermuth out of Penn State, big tight end, six foot five, two hundred and fifty-one pounds. He's a Tyler Eifert type. He's a three-down tight end, Heath Miller replacement. Uh, love this pick. He can, like I said, he can stay on the field for all three downs. So you get Harris, you get the big tight end to help with the run game, run blocking, play action, quick little short throws over the middle of the football field. Keep those chains moving. Keep Ben in manageable down and distance. Then you follow it up with Kendrick Green, big old mauler guard out of Illinois, six foot two, three hundred and five pounds. He's a guard center mix, three year starter for out of Illinois. Um, he is going to be a nice interior um, offensive line piece for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Round four, you had they had two picks there in the second round, and um, they take. Big tackle, offensive tackle, um, you know, Dan Moore from Texas A&M at 6'5", 3'10". He's going to be a nice swing tackle for them. And then they go back to the linebacker spot here in uh, in rounds 4 and 6 with Buddy Johnson and Quincy Roach out of Texas A&M um, for Buddy Johnson. And I absolutely love these picks. And and they they throw in in round 5 at 156, Isaiah Loudermilk out of Wisconsin. Um there's going to be some challenge off the edge between Roach and Johnson for Alex Highsmith here um, in this these rounds four and six in terms of finding linebackers, edge rushers for the Pittsburgh Steelers. So um, really interesting in terms of replenishing the shelves for Pittsburgh um, in terms of edge rushers, in terms of linebackers. And when you go back up to some of those needs, and we talked about it, you look at offensive line, they get green in the in the, the third round. Running back, they get Najee. Linebacker, we just talked about it. Tight end, they, we talked about it with, with Fryermouth in the second round. And then they get the only punter taken, the old thunder leg, Presley Harvin the third, absolutely cannon of a leg in, uh, in round seven. is the only punter taken, like I said. So um, overall for Pittsburgh, giving them a big thumbs up uh, for the Pittsburgh Steelers. I thought they did a nice job uh, in terms of drafting for positional needs, finding some playmakers, finding some good scheme fits and players that they're going to be able to use. So before we get over to our, our interview with uh, with Jake Liskow on, uh, about the Cincinnati Bengals, let's finish our portion off of the AFC North, and that starts out with the Cleveland Browns. And uh, what they did, the hometown Browns, as we know, the draft was hosted in Cleveland a couple weeks back now. And we look at it. And some of their positional needs going into uh, into the draft and, and the second portion of free agency. And, we, and, and we've seen 
what happens here is they they dra they pick up Jadavion Clowney to pair opposite of Miles Garrett. You know, you're looking at cornerback, you're looking at linebacker, you're looking at O line, some moral line depth. We've seen what happened as injuries started to hit them um, in a deep playoff run for the Browns and, and as it started to fade away and they had to throw in guys that were literally off of the street five, six, seven days um, in the building um, for a divisional game against Kansas City. So a tough spot they were thrown into. So they really tried to get you know some O-line depth, some pass, rup, pass rush depth and really find, try to find that, you know, a second and third corner that could be used. Loved what they did at the safety position in terms of free agency, grabbing John Johnson and Troy Hill from from uh, the Rams. Much more physical, and we're going to get into that. But and what do they do uh, with that first pick at twenty six? They take Greg Newsom, the, the second um, cornerback out of North Northwestern. Um, great pick, and you know you can pair him now with Denzel Ward. His comp is Darius Slay. He's a day one starter. He's an absolute day one starter. And now, you know, you you got Ward. You've got Newsom. Pushes MJ Stewart, Greedy Williams down the depth chart as your three and four corner. So now you've got a little bit of depth at that corner position. That's a check mark. Then in round two, uh, you go get uh, Jeremiah Karamoa um, Awasa, Awasu, sorry, um, out of Notre Dame. Six foot one, two hundred and twenty-one pound, undersized linebacker, edge rusher, um, kind of a specific role here. And and this is a pick here in the second round with the fifty-second pick here that you really felt that Cleveland had a role for this kid, uh, whether it be the will linebacker in a three-four, whether it be um, you know the weak side linebacker, uh, um, sorry, the will linebacker on a four-three. You know the weak side linebacker on a three-four, uh, rushing the passer. This is going to be a specific role for this kid. He's an absolute freak athlete. Um, tested off the charts. Had a little bit of a heart issue that made him drop out of the first round. A lot of people say in terms of the draft that then was determined that there really was no heart issue. So I, I like this pick from from the Browns, but. Um, felt they could have went somewhere else in terms of some of their needs and what they were really looking for here. Um, then we move on to uh, to round three, and this was the, the trade-down pick. And, uh, you know, they trade down uh, to the 91st overall pick, pick number 28 in round three, and they get Anthony Swartz, um, water bug wide receiver out of Auburn. This kid's an absolute speedster with track speed and a real nice... Uh, addition, I think, here to the wide receiver core when you look at, you know, OBJ, Jarvis Landry, um, you know, Rashad Higgins, and and what they're going to want to do offensively. So now you can really set up a package of plays for this kid and try to use his track speed and hit, you know, a, a couple home runs uh, throughout the course of the season. So not a bad pick. Is he going to be an, an instant impact? No. Is he going to see 8 to 12 plays? Possibly. So really for me, um, as we start to move down the board here for, for Cleveland, is they they really specified specific plays, uh, types of players 
as to what they were looking for. Um, you know, the speed water bug wide receiver, uh, the weak side pass rusher, depending on down and distance and where you're at. You know, Newsom's Newsom. You know, he's going to be a plug and play starter in that first round, and 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 you move down to uh, to round four with the hundred and tenth overall pick, taking James Hudson out of uh, the Cincy, um, raw athletic. You know, um, he's going to be able to be another. He's a you know six foot five, three hundred thirteen pounds. He's a swing tackle. Um, so you you know you're adding to that old line depth a little bit. You add a little D line depth later on here. Love the pick in the fifth round at 153. Linebacker uh, Tony Fields out of West Virginia, six foot, uh, 222 pounds. So there's that undersized spot. Um, interesting again where he's gonna fit in this scheme, and and you're starting to catch my drift here, and and that's why. I wasn't as big on the Browns draft as some of the national prognosticators were because I just I think I need to see a little bit more and I, I know we're I've said that in past podcasts and you you talk about that you know talk to me three years down the road but this one specifically I really struggled to see where the impact was going to come from these picks whether it be the pass rusher in the second round um, the linebacker in the fifth round. Um, the swing tackle, uh, Swartz wide receiver in the third round. I, I just didn't see the immediate impact. I just didn't see where they were going to fit. And this is a deep roster. You know, some say this is the best roster in the AFC next to Kansas City. So, you know, and we're going to get into it in, in the AFC East with, with Buffalo. So, it, and, and we talked about it with Tampa. You know, when you're at that upper echelon and at that level, it can be tough to add impact players. And I understand that. But um, I just just not seeing the fit here in Cleveland. I'm giving them a thumbs down uh, in terms of their draft for impact and what they were looking for to really try to push them over the top here and and beat the likes of Buffalo and Kansas City here in 2021 and try to find their way to a Super Bowl. And that, folks, is our AFC North breakdown, except for the Cincinnati Bengals. So before we go anywhere... Let's flip over to our interview now with Jake Liskow, Locked On Bengals podcast. He knows it all. You're going to hear some great insight. I hope you enjoy, and we'll catch you when we get back. All right, listeners, let's give a nice Triple G welcome to uh, co-host of the Locked On the Bengals podcast. Knows everything Cincinnati Bengals. Sounds like he's going to be making his way up Toronto, Toronto way uh, in a layover flight to uh, back over to Cincy for a week four trip. Uh, Jake Liskow. Lake, Jake, are you, uh, you with us there? I am. Yeah. How's it going, man? Not too bad. Not too bad. Well, welcome to Triple G. Thanks for coming on. We appreciate your time and, and let's hop right into it. Jake, what, uh, what's, what's the next step? We, you know, we've seen the, the, the emergence of, of Joe Burroughs and, and an amazing rookie season that got you know cut short due to a, a horrific injury and and it sounds like he's going to be back for for training camp here what's the next step that joe burrow's looking to make and what's the next step that that bengals nation is looking for joe burrow's to make yeah joe burrow great day to be recording this podcast because he was a not quite a full go but he participated in the ota program that the bengals started on tuesday as we're recording this episode. 
So that is great news. He's kind of back in action before I think anyone really thought he would be. His doctor, Dr. Neil Elitrash, who works out in LA, who did the surgery recently, told Adam Schefter that he's ahead of schedule, that he has surpassed expectations in rehab. He's in the return to performance phase of his ACL or knee shredding rehab. And that's great news for Bengals fans for sure, because what was really missing from his game last year was something that he was excellent at at LSU. He was a very proficient thrower of the deep ball at Louisiana State University in his breakout year down there when he went down as a graduate student transferring from Ohio State. Yep. And, you know, his his connection with Jamar Chase specifically was was profound at that level. The the production they had on deep passes counted for double digits touchdowns, nearly 20 actually. Almost all of the touchdowns Joe Burrow threw Jamar Chase at LSU came on deep passes. He completed about 66%, two-thirds of his deep passes to Jamar Chase, maybe a little bit better. And Jamar Chase racked up, I believe, if my memory is not failing me right now, over a thousand yards on those deep balls, on just those deep passes at LSU. And so adding Jamar Chase to the offense, I think a lot of Bengals fans are hoping unlocks the deep ball for Joe Burrow because in the intermediate part of the field and the short part of the field, Joe Burrow was as good as anyone else in the NFL last year, ranking in the top, you know, seven, eight in most metrics uh, for passing on 20 yards or shorter targets downfield. So really good in that area. Really what's missing then is a deep ball. So we're looking uh, for Joe Burrow to, to make a full recovery, to be ready to go for the season. And I think he has a work ethic certainly to do that. The guy is competitive as all hell, takes his job very seriously and has been very impressive in that regard. And then the other big factor will be, can the deep passing game come together? And part of that is Joe Burrow and and his ability to throw the ball accurately down the field. He did just miss some passes straight up last year that he should not have missed. And and part of that is going to be, is the offensive line, where it needs to be. The, the, there's a big debate in Cincinnati. Should they take Jamar Chase? Should they take Penny Sewell, the offensive lineman from Oregon, who instead goes to Detroit? And the Bengals opt for Jamar Chase. They're kind of making a statement that we don't feel like we need to use a first-round pick on our offensive line. We like our free agent acquisition. We like our depth. And we like what we can do later in the draft to help address this position. So those are the big questions, I think, around Joe Burrow's game as he heads into his second season in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. That, and you know what is, you know, you've got to trust in Joe Burrow that, you know, he's a competitor. We saw that competitor in fire uh, in him last year in, in the 10 games that he, that he played. So you, you're going to trust that he's going to be ready to go opening day. No doubt. Jake, what um, you talked about Jamar chase and, and the, you know, emergence or potential emergence of, of the deep ball here in, in 2021. Where does he slot in on this wide receiver core? You know, are they going to put him outside and, and, you know, is he going to be the number one X receiver out there or are they going to move him all around? Um, are we going to see him in all different spots? What, uh, what are your thoughts there? I think that's a fantastic question because they now have a couple of guys that can handle physical play on the, on the line of scrimmage. So you, when you talk about who's going to be the X between Jamar Chase and second year receiver, also a very young guy in T Higgins from Clemson, I think both of those guys can play 
the X position if they were asked to do so. So it'll be interesting to see which one of those two guys they put on the line of scrimmage. It'll be interesting to see if they get a little bit more interchangeable with those guys because last year they really were a little bit more, you're the X, you're the Z, you're the Y. And they had, for the most part, pretty well-designated roles for their wide receivers as far as who was going to line up on the line of scrimmage. The Bengals do have one of the better slot receivers in the game and Tyler Boyd. Tyler Boyd, yep. And I, I do think that T. Higgins, you know, last year was it, it was a, uh, a penalty and a hamstring injury away from 1,000 yards as a rookie, which he only got to play 10 games with Joe Burrow, and he didn't really even play all that much in week one as as he was coming into the NFL last year. So T. Higgins can also be really good, right? And so you could have a, a real three-headed monster wide receiver, but I do expect Jamar Chase to start. I expect him to be a primary deep threat, a deep ball weapon for this team, but he can also win at every level. You go back and look at his tape at LSU. The big knock on him at the time was, you know, he wasn't an elite athlete. His route running needed some refinement. His release package was maybe too uh, inclined to invite contact. And maybe those are some things that they're going to want to refine in his game. But from the very limited stuff we've seen so far from his pro day, from early practices in Cincinnati, it does look like he spent that year off. He opted out his last year at LSU, didn't play in 2020. Looks like he spent that year wisely. He tested like an absolute freak of an athlete. So perhaps he's developed a little bit athletically. He's still going to be crazy strong and and be able to win at the catch point. His contested catch numbers are crazy good. I expect that to continue. And, and maybe that'll take a little bit of time as the competition is stronger in the NFL to come along. But I do expect that will be a, a strength of his game sooner than later. And so there's a, it's a little early to say, is he going to be the wide receiver one? Right. Because we've just started the first practice of May. They've got, mm-hmm. they've got their three weeks of OTAs. They've got mandatory mini camp in June. And then we'll see uh, in training camp. But the Bengals drafted him at number five to be a number one receiver. You look at the history of the Bengals receivers, they went from Chad Johnson to Chad Johnson leaves a team. Then they draft AJ Green in the top five. Yep. Now AJ Green leaves and, and they draft Jamar Chase in the, the top five. Yep. So this is a team that clearly prioritizes a position and they've hit on it pretty well too because Chad Johnson came in, you know, after not Peter Warwick, but. Um, Oh man, now I'm forgetting it. I'm going to make a fool of myself. So I'm not going to pretend that I remember this right now. But uh, if you go historically, go back and look at the number one receivers in Bengals history, going all the way back to like Isaac Curtis or or even before him, potentially you'll see that they've had a number one receiver pretty much perpetually since the 80s, since the seventies, maybe. So I think that they expect Jamar Chase to take up that mantle. We'll just see if he does it sooner than later with the depth and the quality that they already have in that room. Do you think you know with with Taylor coming, head coach Taylor coming from from the McVeigh tree, and and you know the propensity to to run that eleven personnel, you know what better way with like you said with Boyd Higgins and Chase to have that eleven personnel? Are we going to even see that just as much as last year, or even more than last year, with that eleven personnel? I do think that you'll see them stay three wide receivers on the field quite often because those three guys are going to be some of the best players they have on the team. They're going to want to keep them on the field. That said, it'll be interesting to see how that changes with the new offensive line coach they brought in in Frank Pollock replacing Jim Turner. Jim Turner, perhaps the worst offensive line coach in the NFL last year, teaching techniques that 
really shouldn't be taught anymore, but we won't go too far down that rabbit hole. But the, the point that I wanted to make with Frank Pollock is that the team has expressed an interest in going under center more. And part of the reason for that is that Frank Pollock comes from a wide zone background and they want to get back to the wide zone running game. In 2020, the Bengals were, I believe, the leader in the NFL in inside zone rushing attempts. They were okay at it. They weren't very good at it. They weren't they certainly weren't excellent at it. And the last time Joe Mixon really had a very good season was when Frank Pollock was coaching the offensive line in Cincinnati before he left, went to New York, and then he's back. Now, now he's come back after Adam Gase was fired in New York. So the return of Frank Pollock could mean more under center play, probably means more wide zone play. Now, will that dictate other personnel changes as well as what remains to be seen? Obviously, you can keep three wide receivers on the field when you go under center. And I think the Rams probably do a lot of this. We'll see if they maybe work some pistol into their uh, repertoire a little bit more to try to kind of split the difference between the pure under center game and the shotgun game that Joe Burrow loves so much and some of the read pass options. You yep. can build off of that. That would just be easier to do from just anywhere but under center. So we'll see how the offense develops this year. But I still would expect that they'll remain an 11 heavy team. I just don't see how you don't with three, these three wide receivers at the top of your depth chart. Yeah. It makes total, makes total sense. Let's, let's dive Jake into a little bit further into the rounds. And, and as you start to look on rounds two through six, pretty clear what the, what the message was and where they felt they needed the most improvement. And and that's on both, both sides of the line, offensive and defensively. But is there a is there a sleeper? Is there somebody you know? I look at the likes of Jackson Carmen, and he's gonna you know challenge in for a starter spot. And and you've said that on on some of the social media stuff. But you know, is there a Trey Hill in the sixth round that we're sleeping on, or a Deontay Smith? Who do you feel's got a really good opportunity to not only start but um, be a contributor or a key contributor, or come in uh, via injury and help this squad out? Yeah. So I think in year one. I don't think it's either of the linemen they drafted late. I think Carmen eventually will win the starting right guard spot. Uh, yeah. he, he wasn't actually out there with the first unit today, apparently at OTAs, but I mean, it's May, obviously not too much to read into that at this point. But uh, as far as impact players this year, I think Joseph Ostai in the third round was a steal a little bit. I think that he can be a very good pass rusher pretty quick with his explosiveness and his ability to get off the snap. Uh, we'll see if his bend develops at all in the NFL. You know, he's he was a, a linebacker at Texas until mm -hmm. 2020, and then he started rushing uh, full-time or more full-time for the Longhorns, and he'll be an edge rusher in the NFL, even if he's wearing a linebacker number. But the, the, the guy they picked in the fourth round, Cam Sample, from Tulane, yep. he's a little, Tulane. Bit, yep. yeah, a little bit older, uh, was great at the Senior Bowl and can kick inside. And so I expect both of those guys will play early and often for the Bengals because there is a little bit of a lack of a, of a nickel interior pass rusher with Geno Atkins no longer on the team. They signed Larry Ogunjobi from Cleveland yep. to replace him, but I'm not sure that's, you know, when you go from Geno Atkins to anybody in the NFL who isn't, you know, Aaron Donald, there you're, you're probably getting a drop off. And I'm sure there's a couple exceptions to that rule at this point with Gino falling off a little bit as he's aged, but they're going to be missing interior pass rush. I think Cam Sample can help with that a little bit. I think he can line up both inside and outside. So I think 
that is one thing that he will get an opportunity to do early. And then as far as long-term sleepers, I, I actually really like Deontay Smith's upside. He had COVID. He was at ECU. He couldn't play last year because he had COVID. He couldn't get back up to playing weight because he couldn't work out with the team. He actually didn't have COVID. I, I should correct that. He had like multiple close contacts, but never actually got sick. Got and, and as a result, he wasn't able to get into the weight room. His weight got all the way down into like the 280s. But at rookie mini camp, which was a couple Fridays ago now, he was in at 311. And he has 35-inch arms. He has better movement skills on tape than he tested. We'll see how that translates in the NFL. But he looked like he had good enough movement skills. You compare him to a guy like Daryl Williams from a body perspective, from a length perspective, yeah. uh, from a size perspective in Buffalo, who's fantastic and was one of the guys that I would have liked the Bengals to have signed if he had become a free agent before Buffalo got him on a, quite frankly, a steal of a deal. To, steal to go of a deal, that's for sure. Just a great deal for that team. But I'm looking at that length. And if and if Frank Pollock is the teacher of technique that he is reputed to be, then there's a really good chance that Deontay Smith can hit. And I think he's going to need some time. And, and there's a bit of a paradox there, right? Because he's older coming into the league from a small school. And usually old plus small school means, you know, you weren't winning. You weren't dominating your competition until you were a man. And a lot of that's just because of physical development. But I do really like his tools and his upside. He was another guy that had a great week at the Senior Bowl. He actually was really good both inside a guard and a tackle. So we might see him get some positional versatility in there too. So a lot to like there. As far as Trey Hill, uh, that pick actually surprised me a little bit. I, I was surprised Trey Hill came out. He had a couple of bad knee, not bad, but uh, certainly had simultaneous knee injuries that probably hurt his draft stock a little bit. So he's much more of a developmental type. We'll see if he makes a team in year one. But the Bengals have, you know, they've they've had a history of developing guys that didn't necessarily have incredible pedigrees. And I think Trey Hill's pedigree is a little bit stronger than a guy like Trey Hopkins who's currently starting for them coming off an ACL injury as well. But he was an undrafted guy out of Texas who eventually worked his way into being an average starting center in the NFL. So that could be the path that they're hoping for, for a guy like Trey Hill. Yeah. And it's nice when you, you, you get to see on that film, you know, good competition. He's in the sec coming out of Georgia. So, you know, he's playing, you know, top notch pass rushers and, and, you know, it, it, that transfers a little bit better or easier to project in the NFL than, yeah. you know, uh, Deontay Smith coming out of an East Carolina, those types of things. So especially um, with Deontay Smith not playing last year, that's certainly yeah. unfortunate for him. But I, I can tell you that the, the Bengals coaches loved what he did at the Senior Bowl and uh, for, for good reason. He was very good down there. Jake, what, what's left on this roster to fill here as we move into phase two, phase three of free agency, and like you said, OTAs, and we get to camp, and we get closer to the season? Do you see them signing any veterans or, or looking at a specific spot, um, tight end or safety, something like that, where they could find somebody on a veteran minimum deal that could really help this squad um, depth-wise or even contributing um, you know, by week six, week seven via injury? I don't think it'll be safety, but the other position you mentioned, tight end, wouldn't surprise me because behind their top two guys in CJ Uzama and, and Drew Sample, there's really mm-hmm. not a whole lot. There's a bunch of undrafted guys or late round guys or waiver claims. I, th- I think they're almost entirely undrafted players with maybe one seventh rounder 
fighting for a spot there. So it wouldn't necessarily surprise me to see them go after a tight end if they feel like they want to add some depth there. The other one that I, I would certainly not be surprised by is an interior offensive, well, really any offensive lineman at this point. I think that they could certainly still be looking to add depth. The last we heard before the draft, they were still in conversations with some guys that kind of have been you know, journeyman, backup, spot starter, kind of interior offensive lineman. One of those was Nick Easton, who I don't know if he ended up signing somewhere or not, but he was formerly with the Saints, was talking to the Texans as well. Yep. So um, it wouldn't surprise me to see something like that. Uh, I feel like they're pretty deep at corner at this point. They, they went so far as to sign Eli Apple to add depth to that room, a former first-round pick there. They signed Ricardo Allen, who goes back to Purdue, has a connection with defensive coordinator Lou Anaruma, mm-hmm. but was good yep. for Atlanta for some period of time. And uh, he'll be a backup in the safety room. So I feel like they have to feel pretty confident with most of their depth on the defensive side of the ball at this point. So some things that wouldn't surprise me, I guess, would be potentially a wide receiver for, for depth purposes, a speed guy with maybe some returnability, uh, a tight end for, again, for depth purposes, and somebody who may be able to back up a guard position because I feel like the offensive line could still benefit from some depth, even though it's better than it was a year ago. Uh, I would say that the Bengals could have made one more move there in free agency to have people feeling a little bit more comfortable. Awesome. Well, that's a great, uh, great breakdown, Jake. Well done there. Um, Jake, let our listeners know. We'll let you go here now. Let our listeners know where we can, where can we find you? Well, I do the Locked On Bengals podcast, like you mentioned, uh, five days a week. We, we've already recorded tonight's episode talking about the beginning of OTA. So if you are interested in the Bengals, my co-host James Rapine and I do have you covered every day of the week. Uh, Monday to Friday, we have episodes out for you. And there's a ton of content that you could catch up on as well. If you're interested in that, you can also find me on Twitter at Jake Lisco, L-I-S-C-O-W. And I'll get you covered with my personal thoughts about the Cincinnati Bengals and the things that, that I observe or the things that I hear. And if you're interested in the Bengals, I really don't think that you can do much better than what James and I do on the Lockdown Bengals podcast for daily Updates, daily analysis, daily coverage. Oh, I love it. Good stuff. Jake, we'll circle back closer to the season and uh, and see as we get through camp and get closer to the season what your thoughts are, and, and you can give us some more updates on, on Bengals football, and uh, we appreciate you coming on. Yeah, happy to do it. Happy to contribute to a Canadian football podcast. Being an American who now lives on the west coast of Canada, this was a fun opportunity for me. Awesome. Appreciate it, and uh, all the best, and we'll talk soon. Sounds good. Thanks. You're not going to find a much better breakdown than what Jake uh, Liskow just gave us of the Cincinnati Bengals and uh, co-host of the Locked On Bengals podcast. Phenomenal job there, and what a way to break down those Bengals. Listeners, let's, uh, let's end the episode off in style, something near and dear to my heart, and that is the AFC East and the my beloved Buffalo Bills, and we're going to break it down here. And let's start with none other than the New England Patriots and their draft and their free agency pickups, COVID pickups, because they had a lot of them. And when you start to look at New England as they moved into the offseason, you know, they were looking for the new franchise quarterback. Was Cam Newton going to be able to come back and be able to 
play at a high level again. We did not see that last year. And New England, in bringing him back, I believe thought that he can still play at a high level and still be a starting quarterback here in the NFL if given a proper offseason and a proper season with no COVID interruptions, um, proper OTAs, proper training camp, all that type of stuff. So, But in saying that, they were still looking for that franchise quarterback, still looking to add playmakers on the outside at the wide receiver position, and then just increase the descent, defensive depth um, in terms of the pass rush. And, and really starting to be able to get after the quarterback. And that's something that New England's always been able to do in all of their Super Bowl runs uh, when you look at it in terms of, you know, beating the Rams and, and that dominant defensive line with Brewski and McGinnis and, and, and who they had there to, you know, all of their, their playoff runs. They've always been able to get, get pressure and, and get home. And as we as we see in the draft here, the board couldn't have fell any better to them in what they believe to be as in getting their franchise quarterback. And the first three go off the board, one, two, three, and Justin Fields gets picked up by the Bears at 11. And all of a sudden, Mac Jones is falling, falling, falling down the board and falls right into the hands of Bill Belichick. What a connection. We know the connection between Belichick and Nick Saban. They're great friends. We know that Saban has, had put his neck on the line for Mac Jones, and the Patriots take him at 15. They then follow up uh, that with their second-round pick at 38 and go back-to-back Bama or Alabama picks and take Christian Barmore, defensive tackle, six foot four, 310 pounds out of Alabama um, to pair him with a, with a pretty deep, pass rush and defensive line um, with the addition of Matthew Judon, Diedrich Wise coming back off of COVID, Lawrence Guy. They get Kyle Van Noy back from Miami, uh, Devon Goldshaw. Um, so they've really got a deep defensive line and a multiple front, 3-4, 34-43 defense that they can use. Uh, this kid's a, the playmaker. He's a penetrator. His comp is Marcel Darius. Hopefully he can stick around longer than Darius did. Um, did in Buffalo, but uh, has the real good potential. And then they follow, you know, go even deeper by getting Ronnie Perkins, edge rusher out of Oklahoma. Um, just that typical Sam linebacker in a 34 system, somebody who can set the edge, you know, six foot two, 255 pounds, long arms with the 96 overall pick in the third round. And then they get. Uh, Ramondre uh, Stevenson running back out of Oklahoma. This is a Gus Edwards um, type of type of running back. He's just an absolute wrecking ball, uh, Legarrette Blunt type of, of you know just a violent runner that just loves great contact balance, loves bouncing off of guys, hard to bring down. So a, a, a nice pickup at the running back spot and, and a nice change of pace from what they already have there. Um, in terms of, uh, of James White and Sony Michelle um, and Damian Harris, you know, a little bit more like the Harris type, but a little bit more of a powerful runner in Stevenson in the, in, with the 120th overall pick. And then in round five, they, they take the linebacker out of Michigan, and, and six, uh, they get uh, some safety help uh, in round six, and then Will Sherman, offensive uh, tackle guard, 
uh, prospect out of Colorado, in, also in the in the sixth round. And Joshua Bledsoe, safety uh, out of Missouri, who's a who's a real nice box safety. Who I think has the opportunity to really uh, contribute on this team uh, in terms of a sixth round pick and, and make the squad special teams. And you know, as we move later in the year, has that opportunity to uh, to uh, contribute. So overall, um, have the Patriots found their franchise quarterback moving forward? Uh, we're not sure. There's a lot of question marks there at the quarterback position still. Uh, wide receiver-wise, am I sold? No. You know, you've got the double tight end set, so we know we're going to see that a lot of that with John New Smith and Hunter Henry. But in terms of playmakers, Edelman retires now, and you're left with Nelson Aguilar, Kendrick Bourne, um, Jacoby Myers, Keneal Harry, and Connor Olefsky. Uh not sold at the outside position. You know one or two of those guys is going to get hurt along the way or have to play banged up. And, you know, if that two tight end set ain't rolling, that running game's not rolling, um, it could be tough for Cam Newton. And it could be tough for Mac Jones if he gets on this football field. They've had some offensive line um, departures there as well, so that's not as sure up as it is in, in other years. And, and I'm just really still worried about the offensive side for the New England Patriots. Defensively, they're as good and as deep as ever. Um, so that's going to be able to keep them in the game. And uh, we'll see what happens. So I'm, I'm giving a par for the New England Patriots in the 2021 draft. On to the Miami Dolphins. And boy, did they do some pre-draft work. Um, getting all the way down to three, then back up to six with the Sam Farron trade for Trey Lance. And, and we've talked about that. And then really working the board and, and and finding their way to get four picks inside the top 42, five picks within the top um, 81, and then they uh, they rounded out with two seventh round picks. But let's start with the Miami Dolphins and, and take a look at, you know, from Ryan Fitzpatrick to Tua Tungavailoa, they were still looking for that outside weapon. Yes, Devon. Uh, Devontae Parker's there and they've the additional Will Fuller but they they just didn't seem to have that weapon and 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 I don't think they trusted Parker in terms of injury history in two out of the last three years and they take Jalen Waddle with that sixth overall pick in round one wide receiver out about Alabama right behind Jamar Chase which we talked about with uh with Jake and this is a kid that it, it was not as polished as, as Devontae Smith, but you can move around all around the football field from the slot to outside um, to number two receiver to the Y. Um, you're going to be able to move them all over the football field and, and really be able to um, maximize his potential. Then with the 18th overall pick back in in round one again, they take Jalen Phillips. Edge rusher out of Miami, 6'5", 260 pounds, as comp as Max Crosby. He's slippery. He's athletic. He's got a high motor. He never stops playing. I really like this pick. Miami needed to um, replace some of that veteran pass rush from, from Shaq Lawson, Carl Van Noy. They, they didn't have it on that defensive side. Um, they had some playmakers, you know, Xavier Howard. We've seen, you know, all the interceptions there. So they had some playmakers at the second and third level, but they didn't have that that lights-out game-over pass rusher. And this kid has the potential to be that. Love this pick at 18. 
um, for Miami. Then in round two, um, they grabbed the Canadian kid out of Coquitlam, BC. Um, his comp is Jordan Poyer. That's a solid, solid comp. Six foot one, two hundred and seven pounds. He plays with great instincts, great ball skills. Safety out of Oregon, Javon Holland. Um, solid pickup here by Miami. They needed safety help um, with some departures there, veteran departures over the last couple of years. Really like it at the thirty-six pick, and they followed up with Liam Eckenberg. Uh, I believe to be one of the best um, offensive line prospects in this draft. Three-year starter for um, Ohio State. This kid had a had a scholarship to Ohio State in grade nine, and transfers over to Notre Dame. Six-six, three hundred and six pounds. Offensive tackle, guard, prospect. You're going to be able to move him. I see him starting at left guard um, here in year one at the 42nd overall pick. Listen, absolutely phenomenal um, for the Miami Dolphins because when you start to break this down, uh, by week 10 here, they could have just picked up four starters. And that's what you need. And and you look at some of those needs, like we talked about wide receiver, uh, D-line, O-line, linebacker safety. You've just checked four of those boxes, and then you ended off with Hunter Long to pair with Mike Gusecki, six foot five. 254-pound tight end out of Boston College as a backup tight end to learn from Gasecki. This kid is a split-out tight end. Now you're going with Fuller, Parker, Waddle. You've got Long and Gasecki. Very similar approach. You're going to see a lot of two tight end sets for the Miami Dolphins this year and Tua Tungavailoa to really maximize, try to get that, that opposing defense in base so now the option is we can run the ball, we can play action, we can throw the ball with the receivers outside, um, really maximize that potential. But truly, um, this season will come down to the progression of Tua Tungavailoa in year two. On to the New York Jets. Um, you know, and, and you look at those J-E-T-S, suck, 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 and, and the needs that they had going into the 2021 draft and after last season. And and let's call a spade a spade here. The need was everywhere. They needed to just flat out add talent. And with 11 picks, I believe, in this draft, they they did a nice job. Um, I ended up giving them a par on this draft because when you start to break it down... Um, and I've talked about this over the last three weeks, where's the playmakers, where's the starters, where's the instant impact. And the instant impact, I get it. You know, they believe they found their franchise quarterback in Zach Wilson. Uh, did the kid look like a franchise quarterback when you stood Trey, um, his, Trey Lance and Trevor Lawrence up? No, he looked like a, a 16-year-old kid at a, um, at a you know, at a big uh, gala or a big event that looked out of place. That's what he looked like to me. Um, I know he had all of his family there, and it was really nice to see, but um, he the show looked too big for him. And and that's what I'm worried about for a kid coming out of BYU, small-town kid. Um, is the show in New York going to be too big for Zach Wilson? And we're going to find out because he's going to be the starter day one. Um, they have two picks there in the first round, and they move back up to the 14th pick in round one. Uh, I believe moving up four or five spots, giving up an extra third round pick and get Elijah Vera Tucker. To me, the most clear cut ready 
offensive line prospect that we talked about, Eckenberg, who has the potential to be the best in this draft, in my mind, in terms of offensive tackle guard across the board. But Elijah Vera Tucker is, is pro-ready out of USC, um, plug-and-play, left guard, right guard, wherever you want to put him. This kid was put on this earth to play offensive, interior offensive line in the NFL. No doubt. Um, day one starter, great pickup. Then they take the uh, the shifty Elijah Moore wide receiver out of Old Miss at, with the 34th overall pick. And then another playmaker in the backfield. Love this pickup. Michael Carter running back out of UNC with the 107th overall pick. Two fast playmakers adding some speed, adding some home run hitting ability to the likes of Corey Davis, Denzel Mims, Jamison Crowder, and some of these um, pickups. Listen, uh, did I understand the more pick? Would I would have went with a, a little bit of a bigger wide receiver? Yes. I just don't, unless you're going to go four wide, and, and maybe that's that's the that's the thought there. Um, but I just don't, you have Jamison Crowder there. He led the team, and before he got hurt in wide um, wide receiving numbers last year, and you got Denzel Mims who came on at the at the end of the year. He's going to be on the outside, but you, you've already got that inside wide receiver. And I and I understand Elijah Moore is going to do a lot of the the gadget plays and and have a specific packages of plays that that they're going to use him for. And and you know Crowder may be their their go to slot um, weapon similar to like a Beasley in, in Buffalo, right, or Edelman in, in New England. But uh, with the 30, 34th overall pick and who was left out on that board, uh, I think you could have done a little bit better there. I know a, a lot of people are high on Elijah Moore, but with Crowder being there, um, don't be surprised if, if um, Crowder's either off of this team by the trade deadline. You know, he's a veteran piece that, that some a team could use especially if Elijah Moore really progresses here through training camp. You could see uh, Crowder on the way out and Moore taking that spot. Michael Carter, this kid's a home run hitter, uh, great contact balance, really likes to find the edge and can find the edge on the outside, can run in between the tackles. He's a do-it-all back, really like this pickup. And then they, they, to me, do something really smart here by the New York Jets. And that's in in rounds five and six, add two safeties and three corners. They struggled to cover. Uh, Bryce Hall was not the answer at cornerback. They've they've struggled at cornerback and safety depth. New England gets a little bit stronger with with their wide receivers with the addition of of Aguilar and Kendrick Bourne, and and a couple of their um, late round draft picks that they that they've added as well. And then you look at Miami with, like we talked about, the two tight end sets and having Jalen Waddell and Will Fuller and Devontae Parker and some weapons there. So the, And then we didn't even get to Buffalo with, you know, Emmanuel Sanders and Stephon Diggs and Cole Beasley and Gabriel Davis and Dawson Knox. and So tons of options um, in terms of weapons in the AFC East. Really smart here by um, the Jets. So I'm giving the Dolphins and the Jets a thumbs up on this one and then we move to my beloved beloved buffalo bills to close out our draft um, analysis over the last three weeks and we look at the bills and you know what 21 very similar to the bucks 21 out of 22 returning starters 
not a lot of opportunity with the 30th overall pick to go get that home run hitter. But, you know, when I first saw this draft, I, I, I really questioned it. I thought they could have attacked a couple different spots, um, cornerback number two and and providing some competition for, for Levi Wallace and, and um, Dane Jackson. You know, it's just not sold there. Is there another veteran option or is there – can you find – uh, a draft pick, and or could you trade up with Cleveland and, and get the likes of Greg Newsom, and and now you've got a two tandem there with with Trey White. But when you break it down and you look at the AFC Championship game, what was the glaring need? The glaring need was one sack and two quarterback hits. You got to a hurt, beat up, banged up Patrick Mahomes, and you only touched him three times in the entire football game. They needed some pass rush, and you've got an aging. Jerry Hughes there. You've got an aging Mario Addison. You've got an aging star Latulale um, coming back from the COVID list. Harrison Phillips coming back off an injury started to to flash towards the end of last year. Um, a disappointing Ed Oliver over his first two seasons in Buffalo here in terms of um, pass rush production from the interior. You know, you lose Shaq Lawson and Jordan Phillips a couple years ago now um, in in that D-line. So it, it was time to replenish, and they went back-to-back with uh, with Boogie Basham in round two with the 61st overall pick and Greg Rousseau, edge rusher out of Miami. Um, but but Buffalo also targeted size. And when you when you start to go down here in round three and re, round five, and they go back-to-back picks on, on offensive tackle and really try to replenish the lines, um, which is where McDermott and and Bean first started all this, and this is how they built this um, was was bringing in Star and bringing in um, Trent Murphy and some of these um, player free agent acquisitions and, and veteran players and pickups and and you know Ed Oliver and, and these draft picks was they built it out through the lines. You know, Mitch. They get Mitch Morris, and I know Dawkins was in place at the at the time, but they get Cody Ford, and they bring in Daryl Williams, and they re- rebuild these lines. And now, they look to replenish it, and they look to replenish it with size amongst the four of them: six, seven, six, eight, six, six, all of them, uh, two seventy, two seventy five, three hundred, and uh, three twenty. 35-inch arms. These boys are big. These boys are long. These boys are strong. Um, round three, Spencer Brown, just an athletic freak out of Northern Iowa, tested absolutely off the charts. Probably the best tackle test we've seen um, in the last 10 years. Training with uh, with Joe Staley. So um, raw, but ready to be molded. And you know what? Um, and all three of them, you know, Boogie Basham might be the most uh, pro-ready but amongst Rousseau and, and Brown and Doyle, to me it really showed, you know, let's go get size, let's go get athleticism, and we feel that with the roster we have, we can be competitive to get back to that AFC Championship game or make another deep playoff run as the same time as we can mold these guys and, and, and bring them in, and they don't have to come in week one and day one and contribute right away, but we can train them and we can mold them to what we want them to be, and it can be a one- or two-year program. So the likes of Jerry Hughes leaves and retires away from Buffalo, and, and we move on from Mario Addison if, if he cuts or he plays out his contract. And then you can slide some of these new pieces in. And really, th- at that point, you've you've got a young 
productive defensive and offensive line um, on some good contracts, enabling you to sign Josh Allen to the long-term deal. In round six with the 208 pick, they take uh, Marquez Stevenson like this pick. Um, he's a returner out of Houston. And then I love Demir Hamlin, safety out of Pittsburgh, back with his running mate in the secondary, and Dane Jackson, who uh, was an undrafted free agent coming in from Buffalo or a, or a seventh-round pick last year. So um, gets back together. So we're going to give Buffalo a par. I, I struggle to see what the plan was um, as the draft was unfolding, but as I see it now, um, I'm not going to give them the thumbs up. I'm going to give them a par. Just a lot of question marks. But I see the thought process now. I see the replenishing. I see the the raw talent, the athleticism, the ability. Hopefully the coaching uh, can get it there and develop it, much like a lot of these draft picks. And, and, and they find um, the ability to contribute. And you've got a potential couple home run hitters. Um, Spencer Brown's the starting, starting right tackle or left tackle in this league if he can develop. Um, you know, Greg Rousseau or Boogie Basham have the ability to be double-digit sack, sack guys. It's just a matter of can they uh, find the right fit, find the right uh, coaching staff to, to get them where they need to be. So in closing out uh, on the AFC East, we're going to rank them like this, folks. We've got the Buffalo Bills in the bottom, just not finding enough impact in terms of what they did. Um, tough to do like we talked about at the start there with with being the 30th overall pick, 21 out of 22 returning starters. Then we're going the New England Patriots. Then we're going the New York Jets. And then rounding out, I think, did the best job in probably almost this entire draft, I think top five in the NFL, and that's the Miami Dolphins. Um, The potential to have four to five starters um, out of this 2021 draft. Great job by the Dolphins and uh, Brian Flores and their management team in the 2021 draft. And that, folks, rounds out all of our divisions, all of our draft analysis, um, a little bit of preview back and forth on on some free agencies and how things are setting up. And that'll lead us into, um, just like Jake talked about, we're into OTAs, some fun stuff now. Julio Jones wants a trade. So what are we going to see there? Is he coming to New England? Is he going to Arizona? So tons of interesting stuff um, still to talk about here in the next uh, couple months over the NFL. But that will round out uh, this week's episode. Folks, make sure you join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for, for all the updates and everything going on in terms of Triple G. Make sure you're joining us next week. we got a great guest live from the Women's U.S. Open at Olympic Club, Beth Ann Nichols from golfweek.com is going to join us live from the Women's U.S. Open next week, much like Bob Herrick did last week from ESPN. Um, So more exciting guests, more on the way. We've got some analytics and football talk coming as well over the next couple weeks. Probably some updates on OTAs, hopefully a Julio Jones trained rumor. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed our draft analysis across the NFL board. Check out our golf picks, and we'll catch you next week. Thank you.